0: support your big juicy brain and this show by going to skillshare.com createunknown create unknown you'll get two months for free now on with the show Welcome to the Create Unknown. I am Kevin Lieber. With me is Matthew Tabor, and we spoke with Casey Neistat. And the reason we we really wanted to talk to him is that, you know, Matt and I talked earlier this year about our two YouTubes theory, where there's the YouTube of old, which is creator-driven and very creative and, and Wild West-esque. And then there's the YouTube that we're evolving into that is very brand focused and kind of traditional media heavy. And Casey is someone who is kind of uniquely qualified to talk about both ends, at least in my estimation, because, you know, he's done so much where he was vlogging literally every single day for I don't remember how many how many days did did he vlog in a row? Did he say it was like 800 or something?
1: Yeah, it was almost Three years, I think.
0: A a a crazy amount of, I can't even imagine (laughs) vlogging at all. That's like the one thing, I don't know. I'm scared of vlogging personally. I don't know about you, but it's like here, here I am, I don't know, making chicken tenders for lunch again. That's not exciting at all.
1: No, but you probably get comfortable with it around like day 277. <laughs> yeah. You know it's probably just the first couple hundred that are tough and then and then it gets a whole lot easier
0: on the next 600. <laughs> yeah okay, that's not daunting at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, you mentioned all of these uh, all of these factors that go into how YouTube works for creators, brands. Uh, you've got the platform doing one thing. you have creators of one kind doing things their way different kinds of creators doing it a different way. And there are 100 moving parts. So how do we get a really good picture of how all of that works? Well, Casey is positioned in such a way that he knows all of these
0: these pieces. He's got experience in traditional media. You know, He had that HBO show. He did a lot of commercial work. He also loves and supports creators. He launched his own business for that called 368. And he also has had sit downs with YouTube execs like Robert Kinsel. So he has their ear. So it was interesting for me to, 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 you know, lend him my ear and just hear what he has to say about what YouTube is doing right. And what YouTube is doing wrong. And also how YouTube creators are doing some things right. And how YouTube creators like him have done things wrong in the past and, and kind of how you make amends or, or change or, or evolve, you know, from those mistakes.
1: He's able to talk about each facet of this process in in such a unique way, right down to uh, we get into how the audience feels about YouTubers' success and this this weird little shame that can go along with with having it actually work. So, like you said, we get this top uh, top level, high level analysis of uh, the business as a whole, the the, the media as a whole. And then you get right down to to Casey talking about reading individual comments and how they make him feel. And we hit everything in between those two extremes.
0: Yeah, so you're going to get a good taste of YouTube platform stuff, YouTube creator stuff, audience stuff, and also a fella that he met that eats hamburgers exclusively every single day and chews with his mouth wide open and, and how that altered his opinion on cheeseburgers moving forward. <laughs>
1: I think it altered his opinion on humanity.
0: <laughs> it was that significant. It was that significant. So you're going to hear all that right now because you are about to enter. Hey, 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 join our Discord. Join our Discord. The Create Unknown, join our Discord. Talk, talk to us. Talk to us there. Discord, Create Unknown. Welcome to the Create Unknown. I am Kevin Lieber. As always, is Matthew Tabor to my left. And today we have Casey Neistat coming direct from bedroom land. <laughs> What's up, dude? I'm, I'm in my
2: bedroom, so I thought the acoustics would be better here. It sounds good. Do, do I sound rich and deep? And like, uh, d- does it sound amazing? I'd say it sounds lush.
0: It sounds lush, slush, warm, comfortable inviting
2: i love all those words yeah plus if this interview gets boring i can just go to sleep yeah, yeah exactly you know? we yeah. have to, talk we to, have each to other. rethink
1: the format when the guest <laughs> like crawls into bed and disappears yeah, yeah, yeah mid mid podcast
0: and then we just bring the mic close to you and it becomes this asmr like snoring <laughs> video that actually gets way more popular than the podcast
2: There's this show, uh, you know, First We Feast, the guys that do uh, Hot Ones, they have a a show, it's amazing, The Burger Show. And I was filming it with Alvin, the host, I'm on an upcoming episode, and he and I realized how close the microphones were to us as we were just eating cheeseburgers, which is a really revolting sound. Yeah. And he and I went into a tangent where we're like, you know, this is the future, listening to people chew on ground beef is the future of YouTube.
0: There was uh, Ethan from H3 did a video. Oh, I, where- I couldn't watch that. You it couldn't watch that. My <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you see this? No, so I did. So no. he reviewed this woman who is eating absurdly large seafood okay. So
2: like- crustaceans, lobsters, crabs, dipping <laughs> it in some sort of like a yogurt jar size of mayonnaise sauce, and then just like,
1: <laughs> it yeah. was like. It was difficult to watch. That's my nightmare. Why That's do you think that nightmare? that
0: is so <laughs> revolting to us, though? Because it's weird. Because it seems to be like a universally disgusting thing, and I, I don't really know why. I don't think anybody likes it. At best, you're neutral. At best, you can tune it Somebody out. Somebody likes it. Somebody well, sure. is like.
2: Something She's doing very everything. good things, very good views, channel yeah. blown
0: up. <laughs> but there's something there that's just kind of nasty.
2: I'm sure you guys have actual things for us to talk about. Before we get into that, while we're talking about gross chewing habits, um I like I did a whole production once with a guy who's a super talented producer, filmmaker. Um, but he was like a big fan of cheeseburgers. <laughs> and we traveled the country together, and he would only ever get cheeseburgers. And then he was a chew with his mouth open kind of guy. And I have to say, like by the end of that trip, if it was maybe a pet peeve Mm. before the trip, after that trip, it became like a trigger for me to just completely lose my shit. Like (laughs) you're gonna close your fucking mouth or this friend this professional and personal relationship it's over <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not a lot to ask it's not like you're setting the bar so high that nobody can meet these expectations
2: no it's like hey you know what's cool wear pants and keep your fucking mouth closed <laughs> like it's not a lot to i don't want to see you without pants on and i don't want to <laughs> see you chewing with your mouth open
1: so when you say that you you worked with this this you know talented guy uh, who only mm-hmm. does is eat cheeseburgers i'm picturing you with like randy from trailer park boys yeah,
0: <laughs> well, he doesn't I'm wear a shirt. A cheeseburger. He only wears pants. <laughs> he only
1: wears pants <laughs> and only eats cheeseburgers. Yeah. <laughs> well, man's got to eat.
0: Man, that, that guy's <laughs> arteries are just screaming. Pat Roach, I think that's his name. Yeah, he's awesome. uh Oh, Randy, yeah, from Trailer Park Boys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, cheeseburgers aside, <laughs> so, moving on, I wanted to get into something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, and that's this. YouTube article that you came across, and I just want you to to fill us in because we haven't read it. it. It's something about you said the the death of YouTube, and and that that no, seems so, like a pretty bombastic yeah, claim to make. But
2: so it was on the verge, you know. It's like the biggest tech site out there, and they've been doing a lot more coverage of not just technology but the culture behind it. And, and this story that I just read, like it just came out this morning. It's eleven a.m. now, and I read it. I don't know this morning, but it's, it's It says the golden age of YouTube is over. Okay. And what the article, what the premise of the article is, is like YouTube as this like beautiful, wonderful, egalitarian place for creators of all over the world to try their hat at finding an audience, that that is giving way to a more traditional um, content model on the platform. That's sort of what, that's what it says. And then they go through it. It's a great article, but they go through it from, like, 2011 when the creator movement started. And they even link to a video, which is fascinating. It's PewDiePie talking about how he has 300,000 subscribers and he did 2 million views the month before.
0: Wow. (laughs) And he's Um, about to crack 95 million, I think. million. As of this. But
2: in any event, they identify that as sort of when this, you know, the YouTube the golden era began then they walk you all the way through it to what they identify as like when things really changed. and the real change happened with like apocalypse and some of the controversial things that felix did the controversy around the paul brothers and all of these other things just made youtube so exposed and so vulnerable that again this is just what this article is um is suggesting is that those the effects of those things were that YouTube is now taking a more conservative, um, you know, a, a more conservative rolled like path when it comes to the content on its platform. Um, but you should read the article. None of these are none of these are like my original ideas. None of it's my writing or my thoughts but I do think it was like a pretty um, an interesting take on, on the world of YouTube right now.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because the first thing that I can think of, well, two things, one of which is that that does seem to be the case. I mean, I know for a fact that all of a sudden, certain words in titles will now mm. cause your videos to get demonetized. Um, Jake mm. from Vsauce3, he built his channel essentially on doing kind of like video game and movies that will kill you so like you know what yeah, the his, home like, alone his
2: apocalypse how to survive the apocalypse kind of video yeah
0: or like you know could the, the would the home alone uh traps kill you or whatever <laughs> and he did a video recently about like the deadliest uh smash bros characters and it got uh basically buried because of like the word, the word kill the word deadly, or you think? yeah deadly or, or whatever it was and all of a sudden it's like well jake just talks about the science of video game characters but that word alone is enough to kind of make youtube take pause and and maybe not promote it as much as it would if you used different words which seems like a big deal and to go beyond just uh, the
1: killing part too like you know this this word that does invoke ah. violence or maybe there's graphic content or something it, we were looking over your back catalog, and there was an old video from years ago where I forget which one it was, but the word war was in the title. And, mm. you know, one of the little browser extensions uh, flagged that as being something that could potentially uh, limit the monetization or demonetize it entirely. And it was uh, nothing about
0: war. It was a conceptual thing. It, it was about been... dragons. It was the the millions year war. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's about man's struggle with this, this uh, imaginary beast kind of thing. Right. But just having war in the title was something you know that that got flagged in that system. And mm-hmm. thinking, what? This is a little overboard, this is tough.
2: I mean, okay, so my perspective on it, I think is not what most people would, would expect because I do, I empathize with, with YouTube as much as I empathize with the, mm-hmm. the creators, but um, not to oversimplify, I, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist and YouTube is trying to build a business. So I asked myself like, what would I do in their shoes and very literally not not you know not like a rhetorical like make it all about the creators fuck the world like very <laughs> literally like you know they it's a it's a huge company what's google like a i think it's it's they're they're in the zillion category right they, they so cross the threshold to a they're zillion dollar company
1: to being worth um, a google <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole point <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> um and so they've got this they've got this, this is let's zoom all the way out 30,000 foot perspective on YouTube. You've got this platform where it's like, what is the number? It's like a hundred hours every second or a hundred hours, every minute is uploaded. So even with 10,000 moderators, there's no way to, to filter everything unless you're having robots do it. Okay. So take that as a data point and then take the data point of having incentivized financially um, countless creators and the hundreds of thousands or millions around the world, aspiring people who want to break into that audience and their motivations vary wildly. I have a tendency to, to really put blinders on and I only see the creators whose motivations are, are creative in nature, mm-hmm. but certainly some are financial, some are, some are much scarier, some are nefarious, some are far more altruistic than, sure. than creativity. Um, but you have the entire cross-section of, of ambitions behind people putting content on this platform. And then their business is getting people to pay to put their ads on other people's content.
0: Yeah. I'm like, seeing. Yeah,
2: for the, his- the history of television, like that's how you monetize TV. Like Seinfeld never made the dollar, didn't make one penny. How did Seinfeld make money? Because they sold ads in front of it. Yeah now they license it but that's not the point i'm trying to make like that's the the content on television has always been a vehicle to sell ads that's not that's no conspiracy it's just that that's how the business works um and youtube is not so different so when you're youtube and you're building this big business and the creator community is this wild wild west where certainly a big portion of it is made up by people like like yourselves and like Jake and the people we know and surround ourselves with who are, you know, making meaningful content and putting it up there. But then you have everyone else, <laughs> you know, and then you have the X factor, which is unforeseen controversy, like what the Paul brothers do. And then you have this thing that sort of perversely incentivizes um, sensationalism indirectly. YouTube doesn't incentivize sensationalism but they do incentivize more views equals more dollars so i think a very narrow way to look at that if you're not thinking holistically is like okay the louder i can be the more views the more it's just like so you've got this this tangled web of factors and like what the hell can youtube do when thinking of the long on their business Mm -hmm. and a very low-hanging fruit in that equation is like okay well let's just promote and get behind the absolute safest content possible. What is that? That's the same content that's being made on television. Yeah. And it's a very simple outcome, but like, and it's very, uh, a very unsexy outcome for us creators who are so antithetical to that kind of content. But put on their shoes. Like, you are elevated to, to CEO status. Quo. What do you do? You know? And I think you see a lot of like collective disenfranchisement across the the creator community, which I respect and I understand where it's like I'm, I'm i'm one of those people who is like it should be all about the creator movement it should be all about enabling aspiring creative individuals that's what this platform should be but if that's all the platform was it'd go from being that zillion dollar company to being a small it'd become vimeo right um you know why is vimeo this sort of small company that is cool and useful and does cool things and youtube is this monolith that's you know, uh, in, in impacting the culture of the entire planet. It's, you know, it's cause they do things differently. Um,
0: so you in any actually. event,
2: that's a very frustrating perspective, but I also, so I also think it's a very realistic perspective on the, on the tribulations that, that YouTube has in building a successful business while also trying to build a, a world that people like us can, you know, build careers and reach audiences and share perspectives and ideas. Um, Am I
0: crazy? No, no. I mean, I, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense, and this is something that Matt and I uh, we did a podcast actually about YouTube Rewind, which mm. you know you famously yelled K-pop during K-pop, yeah, K-pop, <laughs> yeah. <Get it>. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but you know that was in a lot of ways our perspective as well, and I think that the audience that listened to that podcast came away thinking. That that was almost a fresh perspective in some ways because we weren't just you know carrying our pitchforks and torches saying darn YouTube and their corporate greed. It's like well you know their corporate greed or whatever you want to call it is what is allowing this platform to stay afloat. You know otherwise you know we can't upload 4K videos at three o'clock in the morning for (laughs) millions of people to see around the world. That's sort of you know, part of the deal, which you're
1: doing for free. It's not like you right. have to throw $47 on a credit card before they let you upload. Uh, but even if they had a great solution, you know, you mentioned how they almost have to have, have that robot model of, of figuring this stuff out. If mm. they had a great solution, you can't scale it. You cannot deal with the level of uh, with the volume of content on this and and come out with anything meaningful. And it, everybody has to realize that they have to be realistic about how this all works, everything that Casey just explained in terms of of uh, the financial operation side and how that plays out in like YouTube reality, mixed with some of the tech stuff. What what are you going to do? You can't just yeah. rip on YouTube and say, "Oh, this is this is broken. They hate us," and leave it at that. It, you really have to think about about how it all comes together and what that means for like sustaining a platform. Right. Yeah.
2: And and look, I this is this. To take this perspective of, of kind of, you know, to empathize with YouTube is, is heresy within the community, because <laughs> I think that it's so easy to sort of vilify them. And look, there are things that they could be doing better and things that I think they are doing better. As much as we love to, like, give YouTube creators Twitter handle hell, mm-hmm. they respond to everything. They really it's do. It's crazy. Yeah, they do. Even if their responses are unsatisfying, like that's a little thing that's just like, okay, we are making efforts. And um, look, there's always more they could do. And I would never say they're doing everything this is the best they'll ever be. They should be doing more. They are doing some more. They should be doing more than that. But I do empathize with their, I do empathize with their, the, the conundrum, the minefield that they're trying to navigate in a world that's never existed before. Did you guys listen to, um, when Joe Rogan had on Jack Dorsey, the woman who's in charge of, I'm not sure what her title was at Twitter, but she's sort of in charge of kicking people off or whatever you call it. And yeah. then they had Tim Pool on there. I, I was squarely on the side of Twitter in that conversation, even though I think Twitter does so much wrong
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they should be doing so much more. And I find it super frustrating how Dorsey, um, who I'm a fan of, is always like, "Yeah, we're not doing a good enough job there, and we should be doing more." That's sort of his answer to everything. that's like, but do in any event. I, I just want to say, I just want to be clear that like I'm not I'm not saying that they're perfect or even doing a great job. But when they were identifying how challenging it is to decide who's right, who's wrong, who should be kicked off, who shouldn't be kicked off, what is a violation, what isn't you realize how imprecise that whole thing is right. and in that imprecision. It's like, yeah, they're going to fuck up a lot, but like, what do you expect when you have a platform with, I don't know what their numbers are two 2 billion users on YouTube and you know, a, a few hundred million on Twitter or people conversing all day, every day globally. How the hell are you supposed to p- police that? And how can we as people embrace a technology that's that new and that revolutionary but not have sort of any appreciation for just how challenging, or maybe impossible it is to have it be everything to everyone all the time.
0: Hey there, this episode is sponsored by Skillshare.
1: Yeah, and talking to Casey, we've seen so many different types of content from him over you know however many years. I swear he could figure out how to shoot a video on, like, an 18th century shoebox camera. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, I'm surprised he actually hasn't used a potato yet. Like, there's that old <laughs> joke of, like, what, did you shoot this on a potato? I'm surprised Casey hasn't been like, actually, yes. Yes, I did shoot this amazing million-dollar commercial on a bleep. potato. No, I can't say the brand name. <laughs> we'll just peep that out. But on a potato, yeah.
1: <laughs> but he's done really impressive stuff with gears. That's not wildly complex. Uh, he just pulls it off because he understands the basic principles of cinematography. He gets it, and because of that, it's like a, it's like a high-end musician. They can pick up any guitar off the rack and make it sound pretty good. Uh, and I was looking through the Skillshare courses. There's some really cool stuff to show you how to make really high-quality video on, you know, not much of a budget. Things that you already have. There's one. Speaking of Casey with phones, uh, shooting an epic about video on your phone. It just goes through in about an hour and a half of each of the little pieces that you need to factor in to have something that looks really compelling that's just done on the phone that you already have.
0: Yeah, yeah, he literally is using his phone to talk to us (laughs) right now through the TV wall. So so if you want to learn how to shoot amazing stuff on phones or or whatever camera that you're using, because let's face it, some of these cameras can be pretty complicated and it's really helpful to have an expert teaching a class on exactly what you need to know. And that's what they have at Skillshare in, in spades. There are over 26,000 classes available. So just go to skillshare.com createunknown to start your, you know, two months free, two months for free. Thanks to them. Thanks to the create unknown. So it's a great partnership. We love working with them. Go to skillshare.com slash create unknown.
1: we see lots of discussions uh, where people are talking on, on the the meta platform level about, you know, criticizing a Twitter or YouTube when they don't get these components of how it actually works, but they do that with individual creators too. Uh, small ones, medium, big ones, there's the same sort of discomfort with those creators making a buck. Uh, and we know that you've got to have something coming in so that you can get the equipment you need. You can pay the people who help you do stuff and, and, make the most of their talents uh you've got to have some money in you know and and the simplest little sponsorship can get a whole lot of comments about like oh you sold out for this and that and you and we step back from this and think well how do you think it works Mm that this can't just be a thing where creators are doing what they do and never worrying about like Paying rent (laughs) or like getting a better camera or whatever it is. And there's this disconnect between the reality of how it works and how people think it works or think it should work. Yeah. I think that if we're, you know, we're talking about the the broad picture of misunderstanding or lack of
2: understanding around social media platforms, YouTube in particular. And what you're talking about is sort of, uh, I think, the lack of understanding from viewers, where it's almost like, there's almost a shame to be had for making a living off of this platform. You know, it's like you see a big time celebrity, a mainstream celebrity endorsement of something and you accept it. It's like, yeah, that's the way it works. But you see a YouTuber, a social media star and, you know, in- endorse something. And it's like, how could you, you motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> and I, re- I reject that so wholly, so squarely. And I said, as someone who is like, I've done really good marketing with companies in the past that I felt great about. And I've screwed up in the past and done stuff that is like, I only recognize afterwards that like, I really screwed that one up and my audience has every right to be pissed off at me for, for my shortcomings. But, um, I've done both sides of that fence is what I'm saying. But even so, within that, I think that like, I've made, I've made videos that say it should be celebrated when a creator figures out how to make a living off of their creations. That to me is like, um, is a, a, absolutely a benchmark of success. If you can make it through like uh you know, through college ball and you get drafted into the NBA, you are celebrated. You are celebrated. If you get a, if you get signed with Def Jam and you get your, your album released and you get an advance, you are celebrated. You fucking did it. Um, but on YouTube, if you figure out how to get a you know, Coca-Cola to write you a check to, because they want to be a part of your content, like you should be, a, you should be ashamed. And I, I, I don't know where that comes from, but I think it comes from um, a place that, again, I also understand and empathize with, with those individuals critical of that. There's a sense of ownership between your audience and you. Subscribe to you, Kevin. I love what you do. You're my friend. I watch you in your living room. You're not supposed to be making money because you are me and I am you. So I I get that. It is that connectedness that enables us to build these audiences. And it's that connectedness that people feel is being compromised when you are, you know, making a living off of that same audience.
0: Yeah. And I also think it's different depending on potentially what kind of content you make, because you can make, you know, any kind of content on YouTube. That's the beauty of it. Um, But I would say coming from educational content, there's like an extra thick layer of stigma, I think, with making educational content and then also making enough money to make more educational content. It's like, uh, you know, why aren't you just doing this out of the, the good of your heart because you want the world to learn? And it's like, well, I do, but I also would like to hire an editor so that I can pay that editor to help me make the world learn. You know, there is like a process here to actually creating the content that is educational. It's not just Mm -hmm. magic. No, and that's how you get to make more of
1: it. You know, that thing that you like, that you're watching, that you're a big fan of, right? This is what we do. So you get even more of that thing that you like. It should be an easy sell, but for whatever reason, it isn't always an easy sell. So Casey, what do you think could help bridge that disconnect between people's expectations and, and the realities of how this stuff gets done? Is it even possible?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, totally. You know, the, 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 the mission statement of 368, my company was just to help creators go pro. And by pro, I mean, I think you're a professional when you make money off of your craft. And, and I say that because like, you know, I made videos for eight years before I made a penny off of my first video. These are pre-YouTube days. So like, I really believe in that. Um, but I, I think one way to tackle that, and I found this to be a really effective way, is with a level of transparency with your audience. Um, you know, like the thing that I think I was criticized most for is doing an ad campaign and then not telling my audience that it was a the video was an advertisement until the end and they felt duped and they felt tricked. And I went into it, I went into it, you know, making it where I, where I was masking the fact that it was a brand deal until the end, because I, in my head, it was like, my audience will love this. They'll appreciate that because I made a great video. Oh, and by the way, check out this kick-ass brand that enabled this video. That was my naive thinking going into it. And then afterwards when the audience fucking flipped out on me, I was like, you know what? They're right. I think they were right. I was wrong. Um, And I should have seen that. I should have known that it would have made them feel manipulated. And I was wrong. And then the next brand deal I did was me stopping the video saying, this is a sponsored video. And it's sponsored by this company. Thank you, this company. And if it wasn't for that company, I wouldn't be able to make this video. So if it's interesting to you, show them some love because they're enabling creators like me. And my audience is like, "Hmm, okay he's being honest. I understand the motive here. I understand he's being paid. And now I'm in control. Do I choose to keep watching? Do I choose to interact with this advertiser? Do I choose to you know, continue to watch Casey? Um, but they're in control. And for me, I found that to be a way, that's a little thing. And it doesn't solve the, the bigger problem, but going to it very, you know, if I'm giving advice to an up and coming YouTuber, I'd really recommend that. It's like, it's a it's a real you know, real kind of transparency. I think that Phil DeFranco does it really well. I think H3H3, H3, they do it really well where they, it's clear when I'm watching their original content and it's clear when I'm watching a, an ad and they let me know why they're working with that brand. Um, and I, I have an appreciation for that. So there's a curve people have to understand and that's going to take time. But then there's also a responsibility that's on us to be communicating um, you know, the motives, the intention, and the, the why behind our relationship with the entities that help support
1: what we do.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting to me because I think a lot of this conversation goes back to how much all of this is sort of being made up as we all go along, as the industry goes along, as people who are part of it go along with it. Because when I think of brand integrations in, in YouTube, as opposed to brand integrations in television or in movies. You know, uh, uh, like, E.T. doesn't start with Steven Spielberg walking out and saying, all right, listen— yeah, this movie is about like an extraterrestrial. There is a part where Coca-Cola is uh, seen in the movie, and that's because, you know, Coca-Cola paid us to do that. But, you know, I hope you enjoy the movie nonetheless. Uh, and uh, on with the show. You know, that's like not a, not a thing. And same thing with, with uh, like I watch the show Bar Rescue, right? And Bar Rescue is like Kitchen Nightmares where this guy goes into failing bars. Oh, I've seen the show. You've seen John, the show. John, John Taffer, Taffer is amazing. Okay. <laughs> I love John. It's a really entertaining show. He goes into failing bars and he tells them, you know, why it's failing, tries to fix it up. Then at the end of the show, this like this like auctioneer Micro Machines Man spits out the list of sponsors that you've just had. And it's like brought you by. And it's like 97 different brands (laughs) that like helped them, uh, you know, pay for the ice machine or whatever that they put into the, the, the bar. And it's like, that is at the very end. It couldn't possibly be like faster. Uh, It couldn't be communicated like faster and like less clear. It's like almost purposefully obtuse. And that's fine on television but you're right this connection that we have with the audience just yeah it's the dynamic is totally totally different
2: yeah i mean well it's there's also something that we're pushing back against which is that people understand their relationship with tv i know to watch a half an hour long episode of my favorite show means putting up with eight minutes of bullshit commercials like that's the deal i know that you know to watch by netflix that they they're going to take 11 bucks out of my account every month or whatever it is. That's the deal. That's the transaction. And I think the deal on YouTube is a lot less clear. Yeah. You know, some people are like, what do you mean you're reading me? This video is sponsored. I just watched a commercial at the beginning. That was five seconds long before I got to skip it. Why do I have to now listen to you? You're taking advantage of me. This was not the deal. Or in my case, like that, that thing that I got such shit for rightly so they're like, wait, no, I clicked on a video of Casey to watch. Why? You mean this is a commercial? Fuck you, Casey. And, <laughs> and that's fair. That's okay. Right. Um, they were right in that case. Um, so I think that that's something we're pushing up against. You know, like that um, Buster Keaton did it, but it was also in like 55 different Roadrunner cartoons where the train is going down the track at full speed and they're trying to put the track down in front of it before it, goes off, like the track's not built, but the train is moving. That's YouTube. And I think that's YouTube as a business. And that's what maybe that that article we referenced at the top of the show was was about, is that they're putting the train tracks down, trying to figure it out. And certainly for us creators and the businesses that we've built on there, that's what it is. We're trying to figure this out as best we can. And I think that all of that experimentation is really at the expense of the audience. Like the audience is the one that we are expected to tolerate this bullshit while we figure it out. And, um, you know, so I, I think that there's always going to be conflict. And there's always been frustration on, the, on behalf of the
1: audience. We should have seen that coming with the rollout of, of Red and Premium, where there's a lot of pushback that uh, mm-hmm. some people I like to watch, All of a sudden I I have a a paywall to watch them and enough people, enough people, you know, made an issue about that. Uh, It it should have revealed to us that there's an expectation here. That is one thing. And if I change that expectation at all, a lot of people have a problem,
0: you know? And, And I don't think enough people don't have that problem to make up for the difference because it seems like, you know, YouTube had this strategy with their original content where, well, maybe if we funded these big shows, we could get enough people to sign up a la Netflix style to pay for them. And from what I understand, from what I've read, they're massively kind of rolling that back. It seems like now, um, moving forward, their next... I think in 2020, their plan is to have only ad-supported content and, and not really rely on that paywall anymore. And, and I think it, it leads to your point that enough people already have an idea of what YouTube is, and then all of a sudden changing that. It's not like, so I remember when, I don't know, Casey, if you remember this, when Netflix originally started streaming, when Netflix originally was trying to switch from uh, uh, mailing you DVDs to being a streaming service, they put out this—I think it was a letter. Do I remember yeah, getting a letter they wrote in a the big mail statement that, that
1: they sent out? Yeah, th-
0: that they were like changing the streaming service to Flickster. Am I remembering yeah, remembering this right? Like that, yeah. It was okay, really you're, you're, weird.
2: You're conflating a couple of things. But I'm okay. very familiar with what you're talking about. So Reed Hastings um when this was long after they rolled out streaming but it was when streaming was overtaking uh dvd shipments and what he tried to do was bifurcate the two products so you could either sign up for netflix which is just streaming and now if you wanted dvds as well you had to sign up for the separate program and people flipped the fuck out (laughs) and they flipped out on such a level if you remember like reed hastings made like a Really bad YouTube video explaining the situation, his intention, and trying to fix it. And it was just like gasoline on the fire till they rolled back the whole thing. But I think that that is a very good and very interesting parallel. You set expectations. People had an expectation for my $8 a month, I get my DVDs and I can watch your streaming service. And then when you change that, people feel like they're being tricked. And I think that when the nature of the business is as, um, both complex and nuanced as YouTube. you're gonna you're gonna be hitting these landmines all the time. And I think Red's an interesting example because to me, you know it's like, well, how do we get higher quality content that people might pay for? And it's like, I know, let's go to their, our biggest creators. Let's offer them real budget to realize whatever project is exciting for them. They'll use their audience to promote that and get people to pay for the paywall so they can see this great new content everybody wins audience gets fresh content creators get to make something new youtube gets a you know more subscribe everybody wins and then you know it, it didn't work out but again i, I think that that's that's sort of indicative of it making sense on paper making sense in 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 theory but in practice it's far more complicated when you're diving into such a like a, a you know, such a multifaceted universe as YouTube and the dynamics, the social dynamics of the relationships between creators and audiences and expectations and why people click subscribe and why they like YouTube over television and all of those super nebulous, impossible to define things. You're building a business in and around that. It's, it's tricky. And look, there, there, I, there's so much more that could be done to make it better. I'm not, I'm not defending anything. I'm just, um, when I think, what would I do? I I don't have any answers. I think I'm like a perfectly average intelligence. I have like an IQ that's, if not triple digits, very close. (laughs) And I have no idea what I would do to solve the problems that, that YouTube's dealing with on a daily basis.
0: This episode is sponsored by Audible. Thank you to them for helping support the Create Unknown. If you want to support your own brain, then you need to sign up for Audible because Audible members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you cannot get absolutely anywhere else. That's what originals mean. And you also get unlimited access to more than 100 audio guided meditation and fitness programs, along with free access to top newspapers delivered daily to the the Audible app. And really the whole thing is very easy. You get free exchanges, you can listen on any app, and you can keep your library forever and ever and ever, even if you cancel. I recommend that you check out Creativity Inc., it's about Pixar from its beginning up through its huge, gigantic success, and, and it dives into all the ways they set up the studio to combine the creative side and the business side. It's it's amazing. It's really what we love to do here at the Create Unknown. So go listen to that. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial, and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Just check out audible.com/thecreateunknown or text the Create Unknown one word, no spaces to 500-500. That's audible.com/thecreateunknown or text the Create Unknown one word. No spaces to 500-500 and start listening today and help support the show, help support your brain, help support everything you've ever loved. That's a little dramatic, but I mean, you get the hint.
1: So we talked about uh, expectations, whether it's from a big company, whether it's from a small creator, whatever it is, it's really easy to see what those expectations were and sometimes are, like you made this sponsored video, you did it in a certain way, your community pushed back, you knew, okay, this is what they value. This is what they think. I'm going to do it differently. Uh, YouTube does a thing like a a red premium uh, and they see the way people do or do not respond. They have a sense of the expectations. Well, great. You've seen this thing work out or not work out in hindsight. Is there any way to have a sense of it in real time to, like, how do you how do you understand what your fans expectations are for you as it's moving? So you don't have to, you know, fall in a punji pit, uh, <laughs> you know, to realize like, oh, oh, I should, you know, they, they think differently. How do you know who they are, what they expect from you as you're doing it?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like a, um, an oil freighter or like a gigantic ship. You can't just stop and turn. You can't just you, it's impossible. You're this huge, slow move, slow moving monster. That's what a channel is. Years develops years and years over time, and like to to change at all requires, you know, changing the navigation of the entire ship. And then when you do, it's a slow directional change. So I, I don't know. Um, and that analogy, the slow ship analogy, is uh, effectively, you know, the relationship you have with your audience and understanding that. It's it's a very s- s- slow, difficult thing that's really like trial by fire. You know, like I interviewed Mr. Beast last week, Jimmy. Amazing guy. My favorite question that I asked him was, I was like, I don't know how I said it to him, but I was like, are you fucked up yet? Like, have you made your apology video yet? <laughs> and, and, you know, his response was like, not yet. And I think that that really speaks to like, We all know we're going to get in trouble for something. We all know we're going to do something that's going to make the audience angry. And that's not to absolve ourselves as creators of the responsibility of that. Or um, when I've made my audience angry, it is squarely my fault. But if I had known it was going to make them angry, I wouldn't have done it. But when you're operating at such a cadence and you're cranking out so much content and you know, it's it's hard to understand the 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 brains of that big, slow-moving ship. So you just keep trying, trying, trying until you kind of invariably fuck up, and then you you change. And uh, you know, I I know that I've had to change a lot
1: along with my audience. Is it useful to have other people working with you, other people around you who have a, an outsider's perspective on what's happening with your community and what's happening with you creatively? Because we talk about this a lot. You know, like like uh, the two of us. The, the way we work work together on things, we do different things. And so it's very easy for the other one to to have uh, just a, a view from the background where something is really obvious to them, but the person who's actively involved in it doesn't necessarily see it. You're just too close. It, can you have a better sense of all of this stuff when you have people around you who, who can give a fresh perspective, a different perspective, but oh, who also know your work and know your creative Capacities and your styles extremely well, well enough to know what's happening here.
2: I mean, maybe, but probably not. I think it's 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 hard on YouTube. You're putting out so much content, your expectations to put out so much content, and the idea of stopping so it can be analyzed by someone else. Um, you know, and, and if, if you're creative partners, then I think that's a different beast. But the reality is, no one understands your audience like you do. No one is clicking refresh on YouTube studio to read the last five comments 500 times a day. No one is, you know, sat up doing that edit all night long and has the understanding that you have of why every decision was made about every single frame in that video. So this idea of just sort of having a filter, like in the studio system for a a sitcom, you know, it goes through 10 people before an executive producer and a the studio head sign off on it this idea of having like um creativity by committee on, on youtube i just is so far from what people are signing up for people are signing up because they just want to see you they want to see kevin they want to know tim they want to know what he's saying and that's it so the idea of being able to outsource liability i think is um I've never felt like that was realistic for anything I've ever done on the platform.
0: Yeah, do you have anybody that like is a confidant though that you run your stuff by? Because I know that we I do. Y- yeah, because we spoke with Ian uh, Idubs uh, during season one, and I, it was interesting to me to find out that he often will run stuff by Max Max Mofo. You know, he'll send. Uh, whatever he's working on, or or joke, or whatever, to Max, like behind the scenes, and say like, hey, is this funny? Is this dumb? Or whatever, you know. Matt and I obviously work really closely on Vsauce too. So, so you do, you do have somebody. It seems like you got to have somebody at least that you trust uh, to bounce ideas off of.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it, totally. Um, I, I know I do, but it's it's typically I typically only do it when I um when I'm insecure about something or the way I've said something like the best example I can give is the Logan Paul interview that I posted last summer. Um, I sent that to, you know, I I spent a lot of time preparing for that by talking to journalists that I trust and talking to um, reporters and other YouTubers about line of questioning and lines of questioning. But then when that video was done for a week, um you know i had logan text me being who, who's clearly anxious about me putting it out nervous about me putting it out but then i showed it to every youtube friend i knew saying what do you think and um i won't name names but people that you would imagine people that i would imagine that i thought would just endorse it say yeah I get this thing out there Were like don't post it wow um yeah they're like don't post it and then they said some of the things that were my biggest They're so, like you come across as a bully and then I had other people that I trust just as much saying, you come across too soft. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that video is extremely unique. And that was when there was such controversy around Logan that any affiliation was negative. And my base insecurity was that people might perceive that specific video as me working to help vindicate him or me trying to help his image. When the reality was, I just wanted to have an understanding of his intent from a creator's perspective. because I truly felt like everything he was doing impacted us so directly and so profoundly that, you know, he it would be great to be able to hear from him and that's why I did it. In any event, I, you know, we asked this this started with you asking about getting input from other people. And like that video in particular is one that I sought so much counsel for and around. And then at the end of all of it I had to um I had to take that sort of amalgam of feedback and make my own decision. And that's you know, my decision was to click publish. But I, I guess the the lesson learned is that while there's such value in other people's feedback, it always comes down to you. You're the one who presses that button that says public on YouTube. Um, so you, while you can outsource, while you can outsource um, maybe the, the the content itself, you can never outsource the accountability for it.
0: Yeah, and 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 I wonder about. So, you know, you interviewed Logan and you sat down with, you've sat down with a few people who I don't want to necessarily say were like really controversial, but l- like you said, there could be blowbacks surrounding yeah. your association with them. And, and that's something that I think about a lot in terms of this podcast, because it's like, if, if Matt and I want to speak with, you know, X person and there are all these people who hate X person how does that affect their you know feelings about me how do the, how does that affect their feeling like how do you walk that tightrope of being able to have a conversation an intelligent adult conversation with someone who a lot of people just put like the scarlet letter ban uh thing on and uh, and then think that you are now also, you know, canceled or whatever for associating with the person that they canceled. Like that new culture, I find almost impossible to to navigate without blowing up in some regard.
2: Yeah. I mean, look at a really extreme example of that, which was like Joe Rogan had um, Alex Jones on his show a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm, yeah, and yeah. like, I, I'm really impressionable and people can convince me of their, their side of the argument. But I think that Joe's side of the argument would be like, look, like, yeah, I'll have anybody on my show in an effort to understand them. It doesn't mean I agree with them. I think that that's virtuous and that makes sense. And then there's another side, which is like, this guy is truly toxic. He causes real harm in this world, um, which I agree with. Um, he's done real damage. He's facing lawsuits. And he's been deplatformed by everybody else because of the destructiveness he does to the most vulnerable people, which is just awful. Um, and you're giving him a platform to promote those very, uh, that very ideology. And I agree with that. Um, but you can't agree with both sides. So where do you you know where do you draw the line? And I I don't know. I think it's a really, I think there's two wrong answers. And I think there's you know I think there's I think both answers are wrong. Having him on is wrong. You shouldn't give that motherfucker a platform. Like he is, I think he's truly reprehensible. Um, and he's caused horrible horrible struggle with people who don't deserve it. Okay, I so that's how I feel. But then it's like. I, if we don't understand people, and you don't understand why people do what they do. Then can we really like can we really say that we're going to be able to change the world and make it a better place if we're not willing to listen and at least make some effort to understand the people that we um, that we truly disagree with? And I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's idealistic. Maybe that that makes me sound, um, you know, like uh, like like Chamberlain or something. But I. Uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm genuinely conflicted, conflicted by that.
1: It, it really hit me a couple of years ago, how weirdly this, this can work because we were researching some video. I forget what, which one it was, but iDubbbz dropped a collaboration with Michael. And when it was uh, like YouTubers on hoverboards getting McNuggets or something, it, you know, it was this really funny video and they're hugging in the thumbnail and it's, oh, it's amazing, right? And this girl I knew was uh, a big uh, Tana fan and she said, she said, you know, what, what are you doing? This guy who does Vsauce just did a thing with Idubs, who was really mean to this girl, Tana, and Kevin works with Vsauce and you work with Kevin. Like, what are you doing with your life?
0: And I'm like, what? Right. It's like six degrees of somebody I'm mad at. It's exactly. like, yeah.
1: that's not a fair game to play. No. And also like. I'm a complete zilch in this process. <laughs> like I'm like the plankton in the sea of everything important. And you're giving me a hard time. for, And you're getting a hard time. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how do you defend against that? How do you factor that in and make good decisions about who you interview on a podcast without getting some, you know, really kind of odd level of, of pushback? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that the short answer is like, I don't know how you navigate something like that. But I do think that there's a there's a difference or distinction there. And the the, you know, the the other conversation about you know, if you do make a conscious decision to have somebody on your show, are you then is it is it necessarily an endorsement? You know, I think I think what you're describing is like something that's super real and like you know, it it does make sense. And I think that comes back to just like. How do you navigate the understanding of an audience when your audience is in the, you know, the tens, hundreds of thousands, or millions? Like, how do you navigate that? Is, is the answer is it's impossible? But to the question of like, is, is it an endorsement if you're using your platform to talk with someone that you completely disagree with, or someone who is a genuinely fucking awful human being? Um, you know, is it when Nightline NBC interviews somebody who's behind bars and is a convicted murderer. Does that then make them guilty somehow because they're interviewing a convicted murderer? Or does it benefit society murder. because <laughs> we're able to understand the motives of a convicted murderer? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, right. No, that's
1: a good example though. It because is. they're clearly not endorsing murder. Uh, and it's it's that other part where they're we want everybody to understand what happened here or what his life was like or how this situation evolves. Like it's very clear there. Why is it so unclear with, with something like? YouTube or podcasts or whatever it is. there There is a different mindset there. It so. might not
0: be totally clear, though, because of the feedback mechanism of social media, where maybe there are uh, like maybe 1% of people sitting at home watching that nightline are furious that this murderer, but you never is on TV, but you never hear from them. Whereas on social media, <laughs> you're definitely going to hear from them. And you're going to get mobbed and it it's going to then that snowballs. So I think it does go back to this social media weirdness that we are really kind of unequipped to to understand because it's yeah. so unnatural as human beings to be able to get feedback from literally anybody with an Internet connection at any moment around the world. Like that's not. A thing that for the other, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 repeating percent of human history, you know, we didn't evolve to be able to handle the criticism from, you know, Joe Schmo uh, on the other side of the world. I,
1: I think of uh, what Casey said about building that track in front of the train. I think that's really important here, because when we think about the numbers on this uh, Casey you also just mentioned, you know, there are hundred thousands of people, whatever. Think about the numbers where if you have, uh, you know, you open your your cheeseburger store, now that you absolutely love cheeseburgers and we know that. I this, love cheeseburgers. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you serve 100 of them, you're testing things out. And 99 people like it and, and one hates it. Well, that one person just doesn't buy your cheeseburger. And you're thrilled because you know this percentage of people is huge and you're going to be very successful. If you have a video where... of people like it. 1% think that you're promoting hate speech and you get a million views. You have 10,000 people who think you're a monster. And those people can give feedback on that video with the people they know on other platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Contact advertisers or
0: sponsors or whomever, you know, was associated with that content.
1: Yeah. The minority in that situation, the small group of however they're interpreting something, and maybe you deserve it, too. It's always possible, and it happens, where a little contingent actually gets it right. Um, either way, they're an extremely powerful force in a way that they kind of weren't in the past. Mm-hmm. And th- that's for better and worse.
2: Yeah, I think I mean, I mean, think that's the reality of it. And I think, like, it's, I know, you know, the movie, uh, like, Born Identity? Of course, you know, Born I. So that was directed by a guy named Doug Lyman who's a, a super successful movie director he's made a bunch of gigantic Hollywood movies. I remember like he he helped give us some advice on our HBO show. Remember when the HBO show came out, like all the reviews were positive, but then you'd go to the comments under the reviews. This is like 2010. And there'd be such like vitriol there and such. And I took it so personally. Uh, this was before I was on YouTube. It hit me so hard. And I remember saying that to him. I was like, how do you deal with negative reviews? And he was like, the best advice I can give you is don't ever, ever read any reviews. And he's like, because it will only fuck you up. But I read every single one of them, and I think like that's the truth. Like, don't pay no mind to any comment because anyone can comment, anyone can, can can promote garbage, anyone can say horrible things. You'll never know their motives, you never understand it, so ignore all of them. But you will read every single one of them, and you'll lay in bed that night thinking about that negative one, the last negative comment you read, and I, you know, so I, I think you, you know, I. This is one of the hardest parts of YouTube, the psychology of it, and the mental exhaustion that comes along with having to process all that information. I wanted to make a movie about this, but I could never find the, the study. There was something I read years ago, and it's how like for every negative thing you read about yourself, it takes like 100 positive things to overcome that. And you guys know, you flip through the studio app, and it's like, like great video, you changed my life, I love you, such an inspiration, wow, this looks great. So excited for you. Hope to see more of this. This video is really terrible. I'm unsubbing. You put your phone away and you're like, <laughs> I'm a terrible person. You know, like all of that positivity is just gone. And I, and I think it makes you like, I know it makes me jaded. It makes me frustrated. I've made videos where I respond to it, which is always a mistake. Um, you know, it's the equivalent of, of engaging with a troll on Twitter. It won't benefit you in any way. But it's like human responses. when somebody pokes you, you have to poke them back. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, I think that's one of the most exhausting parts of being a YouTuber is dealing with the, the, the emotional toll of
1: comments. I love that you admit to doing it anyway. You're like, here's a thing that I know for a fact is a bad thing for me to do. And I'm going to just do it all day long. It's like, ha- <laughs> it's like uh. when you have a cut in your mouth, like a little tiny cut, and it hurts every time you poke it with your tongue you know, this is going to happen. And you all day long, you just like poke this little cut with your tongue.
2: (laughs) Human human behavior, man. Who knows why we do the things we do. But yeah, I think I think on YouTube, it's really tough. Mm
0: -hmm. I agree totally, man, with all that stuff. And the the comments thing in particular. So that is the ultimate paradox to me. (laughs) It is because because, you know, in, in so many ways, it has benefited me in the, the content that I've made uh, immeasurably. Because I've listened to the comments. If something, you know, is reoccurring that people have a problem with in the comments, I'll address it. If it's If it's proper constructive criticism, I will take it to heart. And at the same time... You're right, man. Like there have been comments and it it always happens with every new release where you get that one or two that's just nasty or just like a Twitter, like someone will tag me on Twitter. They will (laughs) tag me to specifically like inject or respond to another comment and say that they hate me. Like, like you don't have to tag me. To tell somebody else that you don't like me, like you can have that conversation without letting me know. But like, there's that, that extra. Yeah, level. You, use first and last name, but you don't need to tag me. You don't have to tag. I don't care. Put my middle name. You know, but you don't have to tag me. There's just that weird thing that happens, that is is inexplicable to me. But you know, you do have to deal with it. But Casey, you know, what, what, what? What? Go ahead. I
2: was just gonna. I was just gonna say like. There's only one kind of comment that hurts. And I think you just said it, but not so literally. Um, The only comment that hurts is when the comment says the truth. And what I mean by that is like, you can scroll past, I don't feel good, but you can scroll past and tolerate 10,000 comments that are like, you suck. I hate you. Terrible shirt big nose and it's like yeah, i do have a fucking big nose take it easy but it's like <laughs> none of those mean anything but then you get that one comment and you're like that's like your videos used to be so much more creative they used to be about things now it's just you skateboarding and you're like fuck they're right and it just destroys you it destroys you and i remember like you know when i was daily vlogging 800 days in a row or something like that without missing a single day In the last couple months, I was just like exhausted and I was depleted and I felt like I didn't have anything interesting to say, but the views were so good. And like, I couldn't break the cadence. Like I just couldn't get myself out. So I was just making and making and making. And I remember like making these videos, it just felt phoned in. Like it just felt like it was just so superficial. And when I saw that commenters were starting to pick up on that, it was still 99. We're like such an inspiration. Love your work. And there'd be one that was like, yeah, this is starting to just feel like every other YouTuber. This channel used to be special. And I was like, fuck, man, (laughs) that hurts so bad because it's the truth. And I agree with you. And those are the
1: ones that really hit home. Yeah.
0: Truth hurts. Yes, it does. But (laughs) now I aspire
1: to be like a, a critical commenter who has a point. That's like the, the ultimate gold standard in commenters, yeah. to be that guy who says something terrible, but he's right.
0: Like the, the poignant troll. Yeah. That's yeah. your <laughs> the goal. Poignant the troll. poignant <laughs>
1: troll. <laughs> I'm just going to comment on your videos, Casey, until you read something and you're like, I know that you're back there reading it thinking, fuck.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> busted. We, cuts we, to the we core. We totally got it. <laughs> Hmm. So here at the Create Unknown, Casey, we love to showcase the creativity of our guests. You're a very creative person. And the way that we do this is by asking our guests a question that has no answer, that they have to make up the answer just on the spot, you know whatever comes to mind, and
2: I feel like I play this game with my
0: four year old all day, every day. But let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, I'm basically like an old four year old. So <laughs> four year old with facial hair. It makes sense. Oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>
1: <laughs> so disturbing.
0: So here's my question for you: this gentleman, this gentleman that you worked with, that would eat nothing but cheeseburgers with his mouth open, there's a story behind that. There is a reason that he does not close his mouth when he chews. And there's a reason why he only eats cheeseburgers. And it's something that happened to him early in his childhood. And, you know, you, know, you need to tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so he actually, he grew up on a, um, on a dairy farm. And uh, it was on that farm that he developed a real taste for beef. And later in life, when he's getting his wisdom teeth removed, it turned out that he actually had an impacted molar. And in removing that, you know there was an aberration in his his molars, which meant he could no longer completely close his mouth, and it also left his molars increasingly sensitive. So he couldn't really chew steak anymore. So you know ground beef is a much softer substitute to traditional, say, a flank steak. So he sticks now to exclusively eating cheeseburgers, and because of that aberration, he can't close his mouth. Um. And this whole story is bullshit. And he grew up in New York City and has never probably been on a dairy farm. I hope, I hope that answers your yeah. question. Wow.
0: So this guy created a false story to try to excuse his poor manners. That's, there are layers to this fake story. The fake yeah. story has a fake story. <laughs>
2: Yeah, everything's
0: fake. Every every
2: word that I just said was completely fictional.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Casey. It was a pleasure. This is,
2: yeah, this is great. Talk to you guys later.
0: All right. Thanks, Casey. You are about to exit the Create Unknown. This episode was brought to you by Rode Microphones. Their awesome mics deliver the sweet sounds of our vocal reverberations directly into your ear holes. If you want to use the audio equipment that we use, go to Rode.com, that's rod and start sounding amazing. Hello, and welcome to the credits. I'd like to thank our guest Casey Neistat for sharing his thoughts sharing what his bedroom looks like and uh just generally sharing. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. If you liked what you've heard and you better have, please leave a <laughs> please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. It just helps us out and it takes you 2 seconds. It takes you more than 2 seconds then let me know over at twitter.com/createunknown. I don't know why I use the URL, just go to Twitter, it's like an app or something, and find us at Create Unknown. Subscribe to the Create Unknown for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you wanna watch the show with your eyeballs, tune in on YouTube. We also post clips on our highlights channel, if you just wanna watch a quick clip. Links in the description. The Create Unknown is produced by Triangle Content. We've been your hosts, Kevin Lieber and Matt Tabor. Check us out on YouTube at Vsauce2. Executive producer is Dave Kiney. This episode was edited by Adam Ganong. Our theme song is by the incredible Mega Drive. Special thanks to Paula Lieber, Maura Lewitt, and Dorothy Kiney. That's it. See ya, space cowboys.